Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, once again for a room that is filled with men and women who want to hear your word. We walk around this world noticing how few people care anymore, it seems, about your word. And yet, as you spoke to the prophet Elijah, you have men and women you have kept from bowing their knee to the enemy who have continued in the faith and know you dearly and care very much for your word. And even if we don't see them all some days, we know they're there. But what an encouragement it is, Father, when we are in the presence of brothers and sisters who have made sitting at your feet their first priority. And we know, Father, this weekend will be another opportunity to enjoy that fellowship. We thank you for that and look forward to it. Pray that it would go well. Pray for the travel of all those who are coming from wherever to be a part of this. And we pray the speakers would have words of wisdom you give them. And tonight as well, I pray I have your words to deliver as we study this important book of the Bible. Ask, Father, that everything I say is according to your will, that hearts are moved according to your spirit, that your glory is ensured by a true and honest treatment of the text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the next two weeks, we're going to do the unthinkable for a verse-by-verse ministry study. We are going to study two books of the Bible. Tonight, 2 John. Next week, 3 John. Both books have the same author, John. And both are among the shorter works of the canon. You may be wondering, do we need to study 1 John before we study 2 John and 3 John? In other words, are they dependent upon one another? And the answer is no. We see, for example, in Paul's letters that his letters were typically named after the recipients for Rome, Corinth, Galatia, etc. But John's letters only carry numbers, which is why some maybe begin to assume that this means that there's an order implied to the letters. The answer, as I said, is no. John's letters are no more dependent on one to another than are Paul's letters or even Peter's letters, for that matter. John, like Peter, wrote several letters without identifying a specific church or an audience in the letter. And therefore, in order to distinguish them, we number them. First Peter, second Peter, first John, second John, third John. But as I said, those numbers don't imply successive thought. On the other hand, there are some striking similarities between all the letters that John wrote. He raises similar themes. He uses similar phrasing. That's one of the ways we're so sure on who wrote these. He has similar concerns, principally about false teachers. And in all three letters, he constantly emphasizes the need for Christians to walk in the knowledge of what we have been given in Christ. Tonight, we study Second John. And any time we start a new book, we want to take a little time up front to understand the context in which that book was written. We start with the author, the Apostle John. And even though his name does not appear in this particular letter, his authorship was never in question in the early church, and it's never really been challenged. Just a cursory comparison of 1 John to 2 John to 3 John makes it clear immediately because of the similar language and the similar style that the same guy wrote all three of them. John likely wrote this letter while he lived and ministered in Ephesus to a church somewhere in Asia Minor, current-day Turkey. And he probably did it near the end of his life, somewhere around A.D. 90 to A.D. 95. The key concern John addresses in all three of his letters is the importance of living according to the true doctrines of the faith. And then secondly, to resist the false teaching of those who are trying to undermine the truth in the church. In the late first century, which is the time period of this letter, Gnosticism was a movement gaining the most ground in the church among all the many ways in which the enemy was working to undermine the faith. Gnosticism was the big enemy of the day. 
John at this point is the last living apostle. And therefore it falls to John to stand up to this heresy and do something about it. That's why all three of his letters read so similarly. He is preoccupied with this movement at this time in the history of the church, and he alone stands between them and the truth. So he is urgently concerned with this movement, and we'll see that in this letter, and you'll see it particularly in 1 John. And he's working to stem the tide. We're going to talk more about Gnosticism as we get a little deeper into the letter tonight and some of its beliefs and so on. Let's begin with the first two verses. So 2 John, verses 1 and 2. He writes, The elder... To the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. John never names the church that he wrote this letter to. And interestingly, he addresses the letter to a chosen lady, he says, and her children. And many have wondered, well, who is this lady? And especially since she's not named in the letter, that gives rise to all manner of speculation. But there is a way to understand who he's speaking of, and the clue comes in the last verse of this letter. Skip to verse 13. He ends by saying, The children of your chosen sister greet you. As John finishes the letter, he says that the children of the chosen sister of the lady is greeting this church. Now, if you read between the lines, you begin to see what he means by lady and children. Lady is euphemism on John's part for the church. Just as the church is personified in Scripture as a bride for Christ, John is calling the local church, in this case, a lady. And therefore, the children of that lady are the believers in that particular church. Notice John calls the lady chosen, reflecting the name of the church, because the word in Greek for chosen is eklektos, But the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means the chosen guests. So he's saying chosen lady instead of chosen guests. Very similar word to the word church in Greek. The word chosen reflects the fact that God's election of believers into faith is what brings them into the body of Christ. We were chosen, Paul says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the earth. So the chosen lady is the church. So John is addressing a church body who he calls the chosen lady and the believers in that church are the children of that church. And then at the end of the letter, he tells his recipients that the children of a sister church greets them. Now, why is John speaking in such terms rather than just naming the churches? The likely reason is to avoid persecution. John's writing at a point in history when persecution was rampant around the Roman Empire And should this letter have fallen into the wrong hands, then he and those he is writing to could have been identified as Christians in a specific way. And so by avoiding naming the specific locations of the churches, or even calling them churches, John protects himself and his audience, should this letter be made public. That's maybe also why John doesn't identify himself except to call himself an elder, so as to avoid being named personally in the letter. You notice also in 1 John He often speaks about my dear children, my little children, when he speaks to the believers. That would be consistent with his use of the term here. So some have speculated on some lady in his life, but it makes no sense. And in fact, the way the letter writes out, it makes very good sense that he's talking about the church. John says he loves this church body in truth. Not only does John love this church, but he says all who know the truth will love them as well or do love them as well. What truth is John speaking about and how does it relate to love? Well, the truth is Christ, Christ as Messiah, the truth of the gospel itself. In short, the testimony of God's word concerning Christ. That is the truth 
that he's speaking of. So John says he loves this church in the gospel of Christ. And all those who know that same gospel love them as well. This is a powerful statement, and it's one we should not take for granted or jump over too quickly. This word love gets tossed around a lot in the world and in our culture today and in our time. But the biblical concept is very specific and it's very important. John is saying that by their shared faith, they have been made part of a family united in love. And that shared faith, that truth, draws men and women together by a spiritual love that is not natural. It is supernatural. In natural terms, how do people love? Well, in natural terms, people express love to one another for any number of reasons. We understand the love of a parent for a child or a child for their parent. We can understand the love of siblings when it exists on rare occasion. We can understand the love of romance, certainly. We can understand lesser forms of love, like the love for a pet, excluding poodles, the love for, there's love for a car, there's love for a sports team. We use the word in a lot of ways. None of those loves are in truth. None of them. They don't exist as a matter of truth. In fact, their existence is subject to changing emotions, changing circumstances. Marriages end. Siblings fight. Parents abuse children. Children abuse parents. We may lose interest in pets. Cars break down. Favorite teams come and go. The point is that these are not relationships based in unshakable truth. Truth doesn't change. It is or it isn't. And a love based in truth is equally unshakable. The love John has for the children of God, he says, is based in truth. And that truth is a person and his spirit indwells all of us, making us all experience love one for another in the body of Christ. The interesting thing is this. We may not like every Christian we meet, but if we are being led by the spirit, we can still experience supernatural love for every brother and sister in spite of the fact that they annoy us sometimes. Right. And that love originates from the spirit who teaches us what self-sacrificial love looks like. That's the truth that creates the love that John is speaking about. This is the reason why Jesus said things like this. In Matthew 12, 47, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hand out toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Or how about this provocative statement in Mark, Mark 10:29 and onward. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my namesake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In his teaching, in both cases, Jesus draws upon the same principle of love in truth. The love Christians can experience for one another is based on the love of God living in us by the Spirit. By that Spirit, we come to know each other as one family, and that new family is bound together by a love that is even stronger than any earthly bonds of love we've known or will know in any other capacity. We may love our mothers, we may love our fathers, we may love our siblings and even our pets and possessions and the like. 
but we can never love them with the same degree and steadfastness that we will love within the family of God. Because our love is not based on circumstance or emotion. It's based on truth, which lives in us perpetually, versus the kinds of things that stand for love in the temporal sense. In eternity, the family of God will be our eternal family. Next, John says this truth is something that abides in us and will be with us forever. One of John's more popular words is abide. In Greek, it's the word meno, which means simply to stay or to remain. There is a love present among the believers made possible by the truth of the gospel. Having the knowledge of the truth and having the indwelling of the spirit are the characteristics that define believers. And both the truth that we have in faith and the spirit which indwells us, John says, will remain with all believers forever. Here you find a simple proof of eternal security. The truth, John says, which we now know is understood to be the faith we have in the gospel and the spirit that indwells us as a consequence of that. That truth, John says, will be with us forever. The only way John's promise can be true is if our salvation is permanent. Next, John extends his greeting to the church. Verse three, he says, grace, mercy and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. He expresses grace, mercy, peace for all believers in his greeting. Grace, mercy, peace. Those three words are pillars of the Christian faith and they rest on a foundation of Christ. Grace, mercy, peace. John says those three things come by the Father by way of the Son in truth and love. Together, they describe a path of reconciliation that brings us to God. Note the ordering of the words. Grace, mercy, and then peace. First comes grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that brings us to repentance. Grace describes God's work of drawing us into a relationship with Christ and then giving us the gift of faith. And that begins the opportunity to walk down the path of reconciliation. Absent grace, nothing else happens. Then, secondly, comes mercy. God's grace brings us God's mercy. Mercy is just defined as compassion. And through our faith in the atoning work of Christ's blood, God may be just in having mercy on us for our sin. So he cannot have mercy on us without there being some mechanism for him to be just in doing so, for sin deserves penalty. But in grace, we have an opportunity then to be receiving mercy because grace extends to us the payment, the atoning work of Christ so that he may then be just in bringing mercy. And then finally, having received mercy, what do we then get at the end of that road? Peace. God's mercy brings us peace. The realization of harmony, of relief from God's wrath for sin. We obtain true, lasting, eternal peace with God by his mercy as a result of his grace. And it has to come in that order. You cannot have peace unless you understand you've been granted mercy. And you cannot get mercy from a just God who holds wrath for sin unless that wrath has been appeased in some way. So grace allows for the mercy, which then brings the peace. Those three qualities are completely unique to the Christian message. They're completely unique to the gospel. Only the true gospel comes by grace. False gospels of any kind inevitably demand works. Only the true gospel offers the assurance of mercy. False gospels say we must do penance. Or we must compensate God in some way to avoid his wrath. The Christian message says you do nothing because it comes as a function of grace. Only the gospel brings lasting peace. 
False gospels give no assurance of heaven. They result in worry and doubt all the way to the end because you don't know for sure if you've done enough. You can't be sure God's not still angry with you. You can't be sure if the sin you did last night is enough to keep you out of heaven. There's no peace under a false gospel. Now we begin the heart of the letter, having passed this introduction. He goes to verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Notice John speaking in the past tense says he was pleased to find some believers in this church walking in truth. Now, apparently, John had met in some point in the past. He had met with some members of this church, perhaps at an earlier point in Ephesus. During that earlier meeting, John apparently had learned that there were some back in the church that he's writing to now who were walking in the truth. That statement is damning with faint praise, because what he is also saying is, I heard some were walking with the truth and some were not. Some were not. So what does he mean when he says some were walking in the truth? Walk. Well, John uses metaphors and pictures perhaps more than any other New Testament author. He loves these things. For example, virtually every chapter of John's gospel is centered around a metaphor like birth or blindness or water or bread or vines. He uses metaphors to represent spiritual truths concerning Jesus. And in his letters, he relies heavily on metaphors as well, like light, darkness, day, night, walking, etc. All of these are metaphors for spiritual ideas. Here he uses walking, walking in the truth. Now, walking is a metaphor in Scripture for the life we experience in faith. The life we experience as a believer in Christ. It does not mean simply having faith. Sometimes we talk about people, are they walking with the Lord? We're not asking, are they believing? We're asking, are they living out their faith properly? It means to live in obedience to the teaching of Christ, walking in the sense of living out what you believe. So truth in this context is a reference to the true teachings of Christ as delivered through the apostles, the doctrines of the faith, the precepts of the faith. And therefore, walking in the truth means living a life that is under the guidance and authority of the word of God. So John commends some in this church for living under The truth, according to the truth that they received, while at the same time implying a correction for others who are failing to do so. Some were allowing the truth to guide their thinking. Some were allowing the Bible or what we call the Bible, the word of God, the teaching of the apostles to guide their behavior. When those people wondered how they could please God in a certain circumstance, they turned to Christ's teaching and the teaching of the apostles gave them answers for how to live in a holy and pleasing way. Simply put, they were obedient to the word of God. And then there were those who had received the same truth, but they weren't allowing it to guide their walk. The word of God was not a lamp to their feet, so they strayed off the path prescribed by the apostles' teaching, and they were living in the flesh, and they were therefore likely to fall for false teaching if they encountered it. Everybody who's ever been a Christian and every church body that's ever existed knows exactly what this looks like. We always have in every church that group of believers who sincerely work to conform their lives to what they find in the pages of the Bible and they endeavor to learn as much as they can so that they can walk as closely to it. Not perfectly, but it's evidently a priority in their lives. And then there are those who do not. We all share the same faith, therefore we all have the same identity. We all come together regularly. We all greet each other warmly. We all treat each other as equals in the body. We all look forward to the same eternity with the same kingdom and so on. And yet... We know we are not all equally pleasing the Lord now. And though we can't inspect everyone's lives well enough to understand exactly who is who in all cases, 
at a broad level in sort of the broad landscape of the church, we can certainly start to see patterns and see those who seem to be, as we might say, on fire for the Lord or those who seem to be really walking with the Lord. We have our euphemisms too, our metaphors as well, but we kind of know when we see it and when we don't. Some of our brothers and sisters are living with a lesser commitment to doing what Christ commands. And the letters of the New Testament, if you read through them, just skimming across what you see in the New Testament, the majority of what's written there is directed, one way or another, to this fundamental issue. Christians should live according to the Word of God. We must walk in the truth. And when we see a specific situation where this is not happening, we should have courage to speak in correction, in love, to those who aren't walking in the light and making that a priority in their life. That's what the body is for. That's why we come together, at least one of the reasons. If there were any doubt that we're supposed to make obedience a priority, John reminds the church that obedience to God's word is not optional. He says the Father has commanded from the beginning that men observe his word. And he says it's from the beginning, and the first such time God gave an instruction that required men to obey his word was in the garden. And that instruction has never changed. That expectation has never changed. Those who obey God's word are blessed eternally, and those who fail to obey God's word suffer loss one way or another. It should concern us all greatly if individually we know that we are not living obediently to the word of God. We should be preoccupied with that. We should be consumed by our disobedience wherever it exists. A sinful walk should be cause for us to have great concern and be greatly motivated to make changes in our life to fix that problem. Some might suggest that, well, no Christian lives a perfect life, so really, how close to perfection can I get anyway? Just because we cannot eliminate sin entirely doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for greater obedience. Even though men will never find a perfect diamond, it doesn't stop them from digging. And even though you'll never be sinless this side of heaven, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to sin less. And that's the command of Scripture. And there is a reward at stake, which John will bring up here later in the letter. We are commanded to try to sin less by studying the word and then, hard as it may be, do what it says. Now, John moves to one of the most common and powerful themes in all his letters, including in this letter, in verses five and six. He says, now, I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Once again, he's talking to the church, the lady. John says to the church, we must love one another. And look what he does. He connects obedience to the word of God with fellowship in the church. Obedience to the word of God to fellowship in the church. He says the fellowship of Christian love is itself a manifestation of obedience to God's word. When everyone in the body of Christ is walking in obedience to the Lord, then that body will by necessity be walking in unison. Wouldn't you agree? If you're all doing what God said, you're all doing the same thing in in the sense of sinlessness, of holy living, of working together in unity. And John says, in that unity comes love for one another. Then truly the body of Christ is working according to plan. Truly then it's one. So this is not something new, he says. 
Okay, I didn't invent this for your sake. He says, God has always demanded that his people live according to his word. And when they do so, they experience love for one another. Jesus, again, he echoes this teaching when he's asked to give the most important law. Remember that? What's the most important commandment? He answers in Matthew 22:36. He says, teacher, or he's asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, think about what Jesus just said. You've heard those words, I know. But think about what he just said in light of what John just said. God's highest priority for men has always been our complete obedience to him. Notice, though, that Jesus equates complete obedience to God with love for God. In Scripture, love is a verb, not a noun. Love isn't something we feel for God. Love is something we demonstrate to God through obedience. So he connects the fact that you shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That implies obediently living according to his standards as a show, as a verb, love. Secondly, having become obedient to God, then we may love our neighbor. We can't come to a complete and true love for our neighbor until we have reached the point of obedience to God. One is dependent on the other. If you are living in rebellion to God in any part of your life, then you will not be 100% loving to other people. For example, if you disobey God's word by gossiping or lying or cheating or hating in your heart or withholding charity or judging others, well, in each of those cases and a million others like it, you are automatically not loving someone. Because that's who the object is of your sin. To the extent you disobey God, you have to then put some human relationship, almost always put some human relationship at risk. So John emphasizes that we must walk in truth, which is the commandment to obey God's word, and that when we do that, then we may truly love one another in the church. So he says, I command you to love one another, and if we trivialize that and make it emotional-based love and miss the point of its connection to obedience, we have no hope to do anything close to what he's asking, right? He's asking that the church would love one another through an obedient walk to God, because that's the one true way you love one another, is through that relationship. And the Lord, he says, has been preaching this requirement from the beginning. Why does John keep emphasizing this from the beginning? From the beginning. Because the church was under assault from false teachers, and this begins to show where he's addressing the interest of false teachers. These false teachers had come claiming to bring new information to the church. And the church being under assault with this new information, they had begun to question whether the things they were being told now were true or the things they had been told in the past were true. These new people that came in with false teaching, they mimicked the approach of the apostles. Remember, except for John, all the apostles were gone. So this is a perfect opportunity for someone to come and claim the mantle of apostle, to be the successors to that generation, to claim that apostolic authority was supposed to continue and they were the new inheritors of that authority. So they mimicked the patterns of the apostles, and they mimicked the teaching, and they pretended to have the same authority. This pattern had begun even when Paul was still around, and the other apostles were as well, and so it's only been continuing. Now, as John is the last one left, they're actively working to take his place, and they introduce false doctrines of one kind or another. And they explained that their views were new. They explained away the novelty of them, by claiming that they had found or they had been given hidden wisdom, hidden knowledge, something unknown until now that made them superior to the rest in the church. One particularly powerful threat 
was the Gnostics, Gnosticism. And the Gnostics were known for several heresies. We'll list a few here. First, Gnostics taught that the knowledge of God was more important than living obediently to God's word. The knowledge of it itself was a higher ethic than how you lived it. This reminds us, by the way, of Jude's teaching. Remember the letter we just studied where false teachers of the day were teaching lies and that gave opportunity for them to engage in immoral behavior? The Gnostics commonly engaged in immoral behavior and they did it under the pretense that their superior knowledge in and of itself sanctified them. So that's the first heresy. Secondly, they held that a non-literal interpretation of Scripture was required. Non-literal. In other words, a mystical view of it. It doesn't really mean what it says on the page. It means this higher thought that only I know and I'll share with you. So only a few privileged could attain to that higher understanding of the mystery of the word. Now, here's Jude popping up in our memories again. Remember, false teachers are unbelievers. And as a result, they do not have the capacity to understand Scripture plainly because they lack the spirit. So they had no choice but to invent their own meanings. And when they invented meanings that the church hadn't heard before, because the church was influenced by the spirit and they knew the truth, then they explained that difference by saying, we have been given higher knowledge than you. And so with that story spun properly, they could engage the church and pretend to have some authority. Now, if this sounds familiar, it is because it's exactly the storyline of a fable. We call it the emperor's new clothes. Oh, you don't see the clothes? Well, I see them. They're right there. You can't see them? Well, you're not really able to see those things yet, are you? It's a spiritual con game. So Gnosticism in general was a cult of sorts, a cult of teaching masquerading as Christianity. We have the same sort of stuff today, by the way. We have Christian movements, supposed Christian movements today that are just cults masquerading as Christianity. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, even Catholicism and its doctrines. And that is why John is so insistent that everything the Christian needed, everything we have requirements to have, everything we needed to please God and to experience love and truth has already been delivered from the beginning. There's nothing new out there that you weren't given by the apostles. And he is emphasizing, therefore, that the late arrival of all of this new teaching and of all these false teachers, that in itself is a sign that they are illegitimate. They're late to the party for a reason, because they weren't invited. More importantly, their teaching contradicts the Lord's teaching, contradicts the apostles' teaching, and so he admonishes them to remain in the truth, walk in that truth, rely on what was delivered from the beginning. And then next, verse 7, like Jude, John highlights the key errors of the false teachers and their evil origins. Look at verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Start with the first part there. He says, many deceivers are in the world. The world is filled with many liars. Well, that's no surprise for us. He defines liar, though, by a specific criteria. He says, these are men and women who have denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Remember one of the heresies we just talked about for Gnostics? That deity could not be united with flesh because it was beneath deity to be associated with that material. That's why they denied the incarnation of Christ. And John has said, here are deceivers who have gone out into the world. They are those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That's the Gnostic heresy. Now, we may not have Gnostics in name today, but you know this heresy is still very much alive. In fact, it's one of the principal heresies that is often propagated upon the faith. The Mormons, for example, do not believe in the incarnation as the Bible teaches it. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe Jesus was God incarnate. 
Many unbelievers who don't necessarily adhere to any specific faith, but just love to tear down Christianity, their first and biggest concern is that Jesus, though he was an influential world figure, certainly, and a wonderful teacher, and he made great things happen, I'm sure, for various people, but he was not God in the flesh. He was just a prophet, a teacher, a revolutionary. All they're saying is he's not incarnate. That's what they're saying, and that's the chief heresy that John is dealing with. He calls any person who brings that thought a liar. This issue of Jesus being God in the form of flesh will forever remain the central disagreement between those who believe and those who are liars. Whatever concession an unbeliever is willing to make toward Jesus, few will agree that Jesus was literally God in human form. For if they agree to that principle, then they'd have to give a whole lot of credit to everything Jesus said, which I'm sure they won't. Next thing John says about them is they have gone out. That's a very interesting phrase. The phrase in Greek implies they were sent from a common source. They were sent from a common source or a common origin. Like an army, following the orders of a commanding general on the battlefield, they have gone out. Though they may not realize they're working for a common boss, John indicates they are nonetheless. And John names that commanding general. He says, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice John uses singular now at the end of verse 7. He began at the beginning with a plural thought, many, but he ends with a singular reference. The many were those unbelievers, the liars who deny the truth of Jesus in the form of man. And who then is the singular? Well, he is the deceiver and antichrist, John says. Now, John is the only New Testament writer who uses the term antichrist. In fact, that's where we get it from. He uses it here and then in 1 John. And at a couple of points, but we'll just read one. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, we read this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. So John says that every spirit who does not agree that Jesus is from God is operating in the spirit of the Antichrist. And in the case of that first spirit, when he says every spirit that does not agree, that first spirit is the one that lives inside of every man. He's describing the spiritual nature of a person. So he is saying every person who rejects the truth of the gospel is demonstrating a spirit that is under the influence and under the authority of another spirit. That second spirit he calls the spirit of the Antichrist. So he says, every person who does not agree with the gospel, and he refers to those people as spirits, speaking of their eternal element, when you don't confess Jesus as Lord, you are showing that you are operating under another spirit's influence, who he calls the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, we know that the word Antichrist refers to a specific person, a man who comes in the very last days of God's tribulation on earth. He is called by many names in Scripture. Paul himself calls him man of lawlessness, as you know. Daniel and Ezekiel both refer to him as the prince. John is the one who names him the Antichrist. But then John says also there is a spirit of the Antichrist. So there is the Antichrist and then there is a spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit is that spiritual power behind the man. We studied all of this in Revelation for those who were here. Notice in 1 John 4, 3, the one I read, John says the Antichrist is coming, future tense, and is already in the world, present tense. How can he be future and present? Well, he's referring to both the man and the spiritual force behind the man. The man is coming in the future. 
According to Daniel 9, he will arrive at a specific appointed time in the very last days, about midway through tribulation. Or he'll be known at that point for sure. He'll seize power in the world in those last days. But the spirit that gives him his power and allows him to do what he is doing is a spirit that John says is even now operating in the world. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, Satan, who is the power behind this man. So John ends this verse by saying, this is the deceiver in the Antichrist, meaning this, that the work of those who deny Christ is the work of the deceiver, the work of the spirit of the Antichrist, the work of Satan, who is at all times behind the liars of the world, the father of lies, as he's called, working to deny Christ as Christ. And so the spirit of the world, Paul uses that same term in Ephesians, that he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the sons working in the sons of disobedience, the one who is today responsible for their blindness, Paul says, for having blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. That spirit is even now operating in the world. So John ends that verse by saying, Satan is the commanding general sending out the liars into the world to oppose the gospel. And as the letter draws to a close, John begins to give specific instructions to the church on how we deal with this problem. In verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. So John says to us, watch yourselves. But he actually says, watch yourselves, each other, in a sense. The word watch means to guard and protect. And the church is asked to guard and protect each other against these false teachings. He's not asking us to work on this by ourselves. He's asking for the group to protect everyone within the group. The guarding is a collective effort because there's safety in numbers. Like a flock of sheep huddled together, right? You don't want the stray one to get picked off on the edges. You pull everyone in tight and you guard them. We don't guard each other in this way. John says some might lose their reward. That you do not lose what we have accomplished, speaking about what the apostles have done collectively within the church to grow the church up in the truth of the, of the gospel and of the doctrines of the faith. And then he says so that you individually will not lose any of your reward, that you may receive a full reward. The reward he's speaking about is the same thing Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's explained by Paul in that chapter that believers will be judged by Christ after we die. And that judgment will be according to the quality of the work we gave him during our life on earth. And that judgment will lead to a measure of reward for each of us according to our service. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. John's warning here adds a very important and interesting element to our understanding of 1 Corinthians 3. John is teaching us here that that judgment is not an all or nothing judgment. We might see our rewards discounted for our errors or our faithlessness at some level. So theoretically, if we had earned a certain amount of reward in the first 20 years of walking with Christ, and then we go astray for the final 10 years of our life on earth, we might lose 50% of our reward. If my math is right, and I'm not sure it is. In other words, there is a system of put and takes that the Lord is managing. The economy of God's reward is such that he is aware of what we do and our reward might vary depending on whether or not we are faithful. Because John's statement says that you may receive a full reward. It implies a certain amount predetermined that we may have already earned and then lose or maybe we're working up to be able to obtain. It's a very interesting wrinkle on the whole idea of standing before Christ, as we know we will, and being judged for our service. 
and earning reward. Now, what would cause us to lose reward? In other words, what are we guarding against in this case? What's the guarding look like? Well, John says in verse 9, it is possible for a Christian to go too far. I think my wife has said that many times to me. You've gone too far this time. (laughs) That word in Greek, too far, it literally means to run ahead of, as in to outrun someone, leaving them behind you. John says it's possible for a Christian to leave Christ behind in the sense of not abiding in the teaching of Christ. Remember, abiding means to stay or remain close. That's the word he's used before. He uses it again here. In the earlier part of the letter, he says abide. Now he says, for those who have gone too far, that is the opposite of abiding, of staying next to. So those who remain under the counsel and the authority of the word of God are in a position to please the Lord and receive a full reward. Those who run away from Christ are potentially forfeiting some or all of that reward. Also, John says, they do not have God. Now, is he saying they're unbelievers? Well, we know that can't be true because unbelievers never had a chance at reward in the first place. If there's a chance that reward is lost, if that's one of the consequences, then that immediately tells us we have to be speaking about believers. There's no reward held out for unbelievers. There's only hell. So it must be believers that we're talking about. So then, secondly, does that mean John is suggesting we are no longer saved if they do not have God? No, because Scripture is clear that salvation is a permanent work of God. John himself earlier in the letter reaffirmed that. So what does it mean then? For a believer to not have God. Well, the word for have here in Greek, echo, it can also mean accompanying or experiencing. When a believer runs away from the word of God and lives a life outside the authority of Scripture, they are living without God in their life. In a practical sense, from the experience that they're having and from the decisions they're making and from the the way their mind and their heart are going, they are living without God. The Spirit of God is living inside them, And they are certainly still redeemed by the blood of Christ. But in terms of their experience, in terms of their walk in faith, they are walking without God. They do not have in the sense that they are not accompanied by or they are not experiencing the life that they could have with Christ because they are walking without him in the way they are choosing to live. But scripture also tells us that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to us because he cannot deny himself. And himself, the spirit, lives in us. But when we abide, when we remain with God in our walk, we have the fellowship, John says, of both the Father and the Son. Now, that's an interesting statement, because what he is suggesting is you had one of them already. Now you get both. And that's exactly true. In other words, we have not only the Father by virtue of the Spirit living in us. Now, on top of that, we will also enjoy the benefits of Christ in our life. That is the word of God working in our life. We'll have both the Father and the Son in that respect. Because all Christians possess the Father by virtue of the Spirit. There's no denying that. God remains faithful. The question is, are you going to live with Christ in the sense of the Word? Are you going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as Peter says at the end of his second letter? Is that who you're going to be? And that, John says, requires that we guard. So in verses 10 and 11, John gives a final piece of advice to the church concerning the false teachers. In verse 10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. I've been in churches that follow this very strictly. They don't greet anybody. John makes his teaching on this point a litmus test 
for the church. This becomes a litmus test, he says. If anyone comes to the church as a teacher but is unwilling to agree with this teaching, and what he's referring to is this principle that Jesus is God in the flesh. If they don't agree with that teaching, if they maintain a heresy, then he says the church must deal harshly with that person. We cannot receive them into our house. Now, that reference to house is cultural in this case, and it tends to take us off the mark a little bit. In this day, church activities were largely conducted in homes. And traveling teachers, and many teachers were itinerant, they were usually accommodated in the homes of those they were teaching in the church. So the issue here isn't really one of hospitality in the simple sense, not in the way we might have assumed. John is essentially prohibiting the church from opening its doors to allow false teachers to operate within the body because the body was operating largely in homes. And especially in a time of persecution, you didn't set up a, a shingle somewhere outside a building and said, this is where the church meets because that would be the fastest way to get persecuted. And that is also the meaning of the sense of greeting. Here again, we're not talking about ignoring, shunning, giving someone the silent treatment. I mean, I see that as sort of a trivialization of what he's really talking about. A greeting in that day meant to welcome the person into the assembly, to acknowledge them as Christian, to acknowledge them as a brother in the Lord, to identify with them, to agree that they are one of the group. We might think of it as a different word, membership. Granting affiliation, in other words, greeting them in that sense. Remember, they're itinerant mostly. They come into town and they're there for a while, then they leave. While they're there, they want to set up shop. They want to establish a church base. They want to establish places they can be received and teach. They're looking for a greeting in that respect. Not a casual hello, but a you're welcome. Come on in. And he says, you may not do that. To acknowledge them as Christian would be wrong. If you do not agree that Jesus is God incarnate, John says, you don't acknowledge them as Christian. And you don't welcome them into your assembly. I think sometimes we make the mistake of doing something sort of like this. We try to win someone over to Christ by giving them more credit than they are due. Hoping that by association we might influence them ultimately for Christ. If we allow them to join with us as supposed Christians, when we know they hold false doctrines that deny Christ, for example, as the God incarnate that he is, then we are taking a huge risk and we are flatly disobeying Scripture in this case. We cannot do this because it places a priority on the wrong things. We are favoring the potential need of the one over the needs that have already been established for the many. When we do this, we participate, John says, or we share. Another way to say it is we share in their deeds. Glenn Barker comments on this with a very helpful analogy. He says this, Parents must discriminate as to whom, even among their relatives, and maybe especially among the relatives, they entertain in their home. Some relatives might be of such questionable character as to menace the moral, spiritual, and physical welfare of the children. Such relatives must be excluded. Parents must balance their concern for their relatives with their responsibility for their children. Well, the children of God are no less valuable to us than our own, if not more so. And therefore, we should be concerned that if we invite these people in, hoping to reform them, we've let the wolf into the pen. We can't do that. In verses 12 and 13, John says, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. And finally, he ends with a statement of longing to share more in person. And his final words would indicate what we suspected in the beginning, that the persecution of the church has made sharing these details difficult. You notice he says, I have many things to write to you. I don't want to do so with paper and ink. That sounds suspiciously like someone who's afraid of writing too much down and revealing too much to someone who might read it, doesn't it? So John says, I'll come to you later 
and I'll give you more of what I want to give you when I see you in person. And therefore, his closing uses that same analogy of ladies and children. We're going to have to wait ourselves until we get to heaven and see John to find out what more he wanted to say. So that's our teaching tonight. Next week, it's third John, a similar length, somewhat similar theme, but it's got some new things as well. So we'll be taking a look at some some new stuff we haven't seen. And then following third John, we begin the rest of what we'll do in this semester, which is Galatians. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Father, for the chance to hear from the inside of an apostle, a man you gifted in such a special way and called to lead the church at a difficult time. I pray, Father, that his words would transcend the thousands of years that separate us from him on this earth and speak to us as if he was alive and walking the earth today. For his concerns are certainly here with us even now. And I pray, Father, that we would be concerned for our walk, that we would be concerned for how we attend to the word of God, that we would be concerned for one another in our respective walks as well that we would guard each other, that we would look for opportunity to obey so as to encourage love and that we would reflect the love that is in us. And I pray, Father, that in all that we do, we would seek to please and receive that full reward you hold out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.